Turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 13. We're going through the book of Romans in our uh, uh, PM services. Uh, our evening started early today, so uh, uh, we'll call it our evening service, but it's our PM service. It's afternoon, so I think it's PM, right? Romans 13. And we're going to look at the believer's duty uh, this afternoon. There are three institutions that have been ordained of God in this world. And each of them are levels of submission and authority. And these three institutions are, number one, the family. A family is a small community of related people who have as their interest the mutual care of one another. Uh, there's a fellowship in families. There's a sharing that goes on in families. There's a labor uh, that goes on. Right, children? There's labor that goes on in families. And there's provision. Right, parents? And um, there's also submission and authority. Uh, God has de- designated the, the husband to be the head of the family. The wife is to submit to her husband. The children are in turn to submit to their parents. And this makes for a happy home. Uh, When things are out of place, then there's confusion and there's turmoil in the family. So the first uh, uh, institution is the family. The second one is the church. Church is a small community of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have as their interest the worship and service of the Lord as well as the mutual care of one another. Uh, The head of the church is... The Lord Jesus Christ is not the pastor. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole church is to submit to his leadership. And under him falls the pastor, then the deacons, and other members of the congregation. And when God's order is maintained in the church, there's blessing and there's harmony. When that order is violated, then there's division and there is hurt. The third institution that God uh, put on this earth is the government, or we could say the state. The government is a larger community of people who are brought together under a central leadership. We have uh, as our interest the mutual good of all other citizens. Now you wish that would be uh, the thinking of everybody, right? Then we wouldn't have anybody uh, robbing and stealing and and murdering. Uh, But uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be having the interest of of, uh, of the good of other s- citizens and the submission of citizens uh, to the authorities of the government will produce a tranquil society. Now, it is the last of these three institutions that's in view in the very first part of this chapter. And since we are part of a what we would call a secular society, we have certain responsibilities to our society. In chapter 12, Paul spoke in length of our duties uh, on a spiritual and social level. Now in this chapter, he first of all turns to focus on uh, more secular matters and how we relate to those outside the church, especially those who have rule or authority over us, is very important. (coughs) Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Notice, first of all, the believer's secular duty. I was going to say, and then a cough interrupted me, and so uh, I was going to say, sometimes we say there's no difference between the secular and the sacred uh, for a believer, but when we're talking about our society, we can say it's not really very sacred, is it? Uh, for the most part, our society is rather secular and uh, and. Um, 
ungodly. But we have a responsibility, we have a duty to our society as well. And the first uh, thing we uh, want to look at is the submissive aspect of our duty. Now, no one likes the word submission. Uh, After all, we all want to be in control, right? However, we need to realize uh, today that often we are not in control. And if there is ever a place where this is true, it's in the world around us. And especially in the government. Uh, These verses clearly tell us that we have a duty to submit to the authority of the government. Notice, first of all, the command of God in verse 1. It says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Now, when you consider the political climate in Rome and when Paul was writing these words, this is quite remarkable. You say, well, I don't like to submit to my government because I think my government is is wrong in many things that they do. Uh, we have unbelievers that are uh, the head of our government and, and uh, leading our government. And so we don't like that. But listen, what was Paul's situation? Rome was being ruled by a man by the name of Nero. Now, if you know your history, you know that Nero was not a good guy. Uh, He was one of the most wicked of the Roman emperors, even having his own mother and wife executed. He was most notorious for blaming a tragic fire that decimated Rome. He blamed it on the Christians. And the result in the tens of thousands of Christians dying by way of persecution. Yet it is to this man and his government that Paul issues the command for allegiance. Now, of course, Paul had no illusions about uh, Nero. Paul is commanding, uh, it, what, what Paul is commanding is not a blind allegiance to a wicked man, but willful obedience to the commands of God. This command has nothing to do with the ruler and everything to do with the spiritual condition of the believer. The command is simple and the command is clear. Believers are to willfully submit to the secular authorities. Now many have problems with this. And yet it's still a clear command of the Lord to his people. And yet there comes a time when civil disobedience, I believe, is in order. When the state comes to the place of trying to govern the conscience of man, then God is to be obeyed over the state. Now, here's a truth that is in view, view here. When the laws of the states do not contradict the laws of God, then that state is to be obeyed without question. However, when obeying the law of the state forces us to violate the clear teachings of God, then God is to be obeyed regardless of what the state says. And this is what the disciples did when they were called before the local authorities. You go over there and read in Acts chapter 5. You notice there that uh, uh, the disciples were uh, called into question and and had to uh, go before local authorities. We also see in 1 Peter 2.13, it says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. So we have the command of God. It's a command, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Secondly, we have the control of God. It goes on to say in verse 1, For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. The reason these things are said is that God is a God who oversees the events of history. And regardless of who is in power, they are there because the Lord has allowed it to be so and to fulfill His 
own purposes. You see, the Lord holds all power within himself. He gives the power to whomsoever he will. And he does so for his own purposes. Now, if there's any lesson that's clear in the book of Daniel, Daniel 2.21, or in the history of Israel, it is a lesson that Lord, the Lord sets up and pulls down human governments at his discretion. We know, as we said this morning earlier, God was and is in control. No matter what goes on around us, God is in control. The command, the control, and thirdly, the counsel. The counsel of God. Verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? To do, do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good, but thou do that which is evil, be afraid. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, and he is a minister of God, of a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. With these truths in mind, we're left with the Lord's counsel for his people. I think there are two basic ordinances God has in mind here. Number one is to obey governmental laws. Since rulers rule by the consent of the Lord, we rebel against the rulers of this land, then we're rebelling against the Lord. And of course, again, we need to remember that there's a difference between laws that are acceptable and those that are to be ignored. And I repeat what I've already said, the clear principle of God's word is that you and I place God's word first, in our list of priorities, and man's law second. When man's laws contradicts the word of God, then God's word must be followed regardless of the consequences. Now Paul tells us that the rulers are not against thee, or that rulers are not against those who do good. The idea here is not that they will respect our ways or our works, Uh, The spiritual end of our behavior is not what we're talking about. The idea is that when we follow the law of the land, we will be found in favor with our leaders. But when we break the laws of men, we will receive judgment. There's a price to pay for breaking man's laws. Paul felt this personally. He obeyed God's law. He preached the gospel. Even when man's law executed him for his efforts. Now, we notice there is no condemnation of the state from Paul for what he is about to suffer. So we have to obey governmental laws. Secondly, we have to observe governmental leaders. The Bible again makes it very clear that government is an arm of the Lord to maintain order in our society. And to walk in the step with laws of men is to enjoy peace. To rebel is to feel the wrath of men. And the idea, uh, we've already considered this idea, but God handed uh, judgment to men and we're under the obligation to obey them as they rule our country. Even when we disagree with how they lead. And so there is the submissive aspect of our duty. Secondly, there is the supportive aspect of our duty. He goes on in verse 6. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministered as attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now these 
verses, I believe, have, uh, have to do with the matter of paying our taxes. Now, there's not one person, I don't know if I had a show of hands this afternoon, how many of you love to pay your taxes? Better not. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of us really say we love to do that. Uh, when's the last time you wrote a letter to the government? Kate, can I pay you some more money? No, um, we don't like to pay taxes. Uh, in fact, we'll even argue that the taxes we pay many times are unnecessary. They're unethical. They're even sometimes illegal. And yet we're obligated to pay our taxes. Of course, most folks look for any way they can do, uh, get, they can get to, uh, anything they can do to get out of paying for their, ta- uh, their taxes. In fact, the IRS says the gap between what people owe in taxes and what they actually pay is about $93 million a year. So the Lord would have us to pay our taxes if we owe them to the government. We may not like it, but it honors the Lord. So next time it comes to tax season and you have to pay taxes, just say, I'm going to honor the Lord and pay my taxes, even though I don't like it. So we have a duty to render monetary support, also a duty to render moral support. Here in verse 7, It says, custom whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We're commanded to fear and honor those who have rule over us. Even if we cannot respect the person for their position, their beliefs, or their actions, we owe them a debt of respect because of the position they occupy. Remember, they would not be serving there unless they had been allowed to serve by God. And so we respect those in authority. In effect, we are respecting God. So there's a submissive aspect. There's a supportive aspect. There's thirdly, a social aspect of our duty. We are to be a liberated people. Verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. Now this verse tells us we're to be in debt to no man. Of course, uh, we can become inundated with uh, uh, financially, uh, financial debt, and we can be burdened beyond the hope of deliverance. Uh, we must be careful in that regard. However, the idea here is that we render honor to those who are due honor, fear to those who are due fear, custom to those who are due custom, taxes to whom uh, th- those who are due taxes. And Paul is telling the Roman Christians that they are to meet every social obligation without failing. And the command is for us today, and it's no different. We're under the obligation to obey the rulers of our country, and we, whether we agree with them or not, we need to determine in our hearts that regardless of what men do, we will honor God by the way we live our lives. And we're also to be a loving people. It says here, but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no will to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. If there is a debt that we we owe, we're to be, uh, it would be the debt of love. When we love God as we should, we should always love others as we should. And when, we're, uh, when this is true in our lives, we will have no problem obeying the laws of this land and honoring the rights and positions and possessions of others. 
Uh, This was the truth Jesus attempted to convey in Matthew chapter 22. When we learn to love like God, we will naturally live like God. After all, Jesus said that the world uh, would know that we are his disciples when we properly display this characteristic of love. He also said that genuine love always manifests itself in obedience. And so as we look at the world around us, there's much reason to be concerned, and we even have reason to be discouraged. And yet we need to understand that the powers that are there are there because they're ordained of God. And so let us respect their position, honor them as individuals, obey uh, the state. And when we do so, we are actually performing a service of worship and glory of God and demonstrating to the rest of the world how godly people are to live their lives. And when we do that, God is honored. Jesus Christ will be exalted. Saints will prove the reality of their testimony. And so we have a duty as believers to our uh, society around us. Now, just going back a little bit here, mentioning one thing that, uh, uh, you know, our law enforcement people have taken a pretty bad rap in the last uh, months and a year or so. A lot of police officers are, are not uh, uh, getting the respect that's due to them. And uh, there was a time when I was uh, riding with uh, police officers uh, uh, back in Indiana. I was riding with one one night, and he asked me a question. He says, you know, if I was supposed to, would I, what the Bible say about me shooting somebody? I said, well, <laughs> I thought to myself, well, first of all, That's a question you should have settled before you became a police officer. (laughs) But I I took him to Romans chapter 13, and I told him that the Bible tells us that you're a minister of God for good, and that you don't bear the sword, the Glock 40, in vain. He was carrying a a sidearm. And I said, "You you don't carry that in vain. You're a minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And uh, sad to say, this young man uh, later, well, probably good to say that he got out of law enforcement because he couldn't settle that question in his heart. What should I do? Uh, I did find out that he was going to a church that was a pacifistic church, you know, taught uh, that you shouldn't go to war, you shouldn't kill people and, and so forth. And so they had, they were mixed up on on the thou shalt not kill, and uh, so uh, but I was able to take him to the Word of God and show him what the Word of God says, uh, and uh, but I think we need to honor the uh, police officers, and of course there are some police officers that are not uh, honoring God in their lives, but uh, they are there as ministers of God. And that's the thing I always tried to get across to the law enforcement officers that I always worked with and dealt with. Well, let's move on. The believer's spiritual duty. Now, having begun this chapter talking about the duty of the believer in respect and submitting to government, Paul now turns his attention to the duty that he should live in his daily life. What government passes, while government passes laws that are designed to protect and control society, a Christian has a duty to live out his life for Christ as he goes through this world. 
And that's the emphasis in the last part of this chapter here. Now, if you're observant as we read the text, you notice that Paul uses language of haste and urgency. He's telling us that duties mentioned are not to be put off for another day. We're to carry them out today, every day that we live. Notice our duty to watch diligently. He says, watch the seasons, verse 11. And that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. This is a good verse for right in the middle of the message here, isn't it? The word time refers to the season of time. The whole verse has to do with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. The idea here is that the believer is to keep his eyes on the changing world around him and understand that the coming of the Lord is near. Now again, sadly, many believers are cruising lazily through life, not considering the fact that Jesus might return at any moment. Yet all one has to do is to cross-reference the daily news with the Word of God, and you can see that His coming is near. The second thing we need to do is watch for sleep. Not only watch for seasons, but watch for sleep. Paul tells us the time for slumber has long since passed. The words high time meant a specific hour has arrived. Too many people of God are sleeping on the job. Living their lives as they please without the thought of the will of God or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now sleep is defined as a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness. Wake up. And a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. That's what uh, we want you to all be awake, right? In other words, a sleeping person is out of touch with the events that, are sh- surround- that surround him while he sleeps. Now, it may be fine to doze off during a ball game, but it's pretty hard to do that sometimes, unless you're really, really tired. Or if you're watching the ball game on your television and the sound is way down low. But if you're at the ball game, I tell you, I was at a Twins game this last week, and it would have been pretty hard to doze off. I mean, every, other, every inning, it's that uh, the music is loud and the crowd gets all worked up and uh, somebody's clapping their hands right in your ear in the back, in back of you. I mean, you can't, you can't go to sleep if you wanted to. Now, a good place to fall asleep is while you're watching golf, right? You can go to sleep real easy that way. And I love to watch golf. I also like to to get a little sleep when I do that. But many people in church are in a state of inactivity when it comes to the things of God. I'm not just talking about sleeping in church. I'm talking about your spiritual life. Inactivity when it comes to the things of God. And this should not be. Many May the Lord find us watching when He comes. And then watch for the Savior. Paul tells us that our salvation is nearer than when we believed. Now, We know that there are three stages to salvation. We're saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. At the moment of conversion, we're saved from the penalty of sin. And we are being saved daily from the power of sin. We will be saved eventually from the presence of sin. Amen? 
our salvation is fully accomplished today. But being, it's not fully accomplished today, but it's being worked out in our daily lives. It is accomplished in the sense that we know that we're saved, but we're still continuing to work that out in our lives. One day Jesus is going to return for his people. We'll experience the complete effects of salvation. And so what Paul says here is that every day we pitch our tent one step closer to glory. And he wants to remind us that Jesus is nearer today than he was yesterday. So are we living our lives in anticipation of his soon return? Did you put into your schedule this week, oh yeah, the Lord may return. It may be before we are finished today, or it may be tomorrow. Our duty is to watch diligently. Secondly, to war diligently. Now he's talking about here a time of crisis. Paul is telling us there's a time to sleep, and it's that time is past. Now is the time to be active for the Lord. His, re, his word reminds us that there's an urgency about the things of God. You know, every day... There are people that die. And every day there are people that die that are not saved. They're going to hell. Every day the forces of evil are growing stronger and working harder in this world. There's a tremendous need for believers everywhere to wake up from their slumber, to recognize the seriousness and the lateness of the hour, and get busy serving the Lord with all of our might. If you're planning to tell your neighbors about Jesus, then tell them now. If you're going to tell your family about the Lord Jesus, then now is the time. If you're going to work for the Lord, now is the time. And may we recognize the crisis of the hour and dedicate ourselves to being all that God wants us to be. You know, another thought that's contained in this verse here is in verse 12, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. The reign of darkness on this earth is growing nearer. Since Satan knows that his time is short, I believe Satan's pulling out all the stops in our day. Very soon the darkness of sin will have fallen over this world like a veil And it's going to be lifted and the glorious dawn of a new day will come, but the day when Jesus himself will rule and reign. So there's a time of crisis, but there's also a time of commitment. This idea of rising from sleep, throwing off the bed covers and the night clothes and getting himself dressed for the day. One of our favorite sayings around our house through the years has been, you're burning daylight. Get up, get at them. Since Paul says the word armor here, we, uh, we could say he's speaking of a new recruit who shows up for duty in the military and once there he's stripped of his civilian clothes and he's dressed in the uniform of an army or a marine or a person, who, a soldier. He's, it's a change that will last as long as he serves. The imagery is perfect here. I believe it speaks of the believer forever laying aside the ways of the old life Dressing up once for all in the ways of the new life in Christ. There's a duty to war diligently. Are we willing to do that? There's a duty to walk diligently. 
Again, this verse here uh, uh, is a carryover. This carries into the next verse. Paul calls a believer to exhibit the right kind of walk. Verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering or wantonness, uh, not in strife and envying. The phrase there, walk honestly, means to behave properly. To live our lives in such a way that they're consistent with who we are on the inside. No pretense in our lives. If if we say we're saved, then we need to live like we're saved. And so we need to show a decent walk. A decent walk. Nothing should be hidden about our lives. We should be like an open book to all who look at us and see how we live. Secondly, we should shun a devilish walk. After telling us how we should live, he turns to his attention to how we should not live. He mentions six sins here. Rioting, wild parties and brawling. Drunkenness, that's easy to know what that's talking about. Alcohol and drug abuse. Chambering, uh, that has to do with uh, intimate Act, uh, sexual activities and so forth uh, outside of marriage, adultery, fornication. Then he goes on and he talks about wantonness. That's a word tied to the previous word. It means unbridled, uninhibited sexual desire. Strife. Word has uh, the mindset that seeks its own way first. You know how many people want their way And their way only. And then there's envy. The spirit of jealousy. Me first. Me first. And everyone else comes after. And so we need to walk diligently. Honor the Lord honestly and then avoid these sins. And then... Fourthly, our duty to wait diligently. And the first thing he mentions here in verse uh, 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing is wait properly dressed. Paul tells us while we're waiting in this world for the Lord to return, we should be careful that we act the right way. He tells us to put on the Lord Jesus. Of course, We're placed into Christ at the moment of our conversion. But here he means that we're to clothe ourselves in all that Jesus is. We're to adopt his character as our character. We're to adopt his lifestyle as our lifestyle. His truth. We're to walk in his truth. He is light. We're to walk in light. He is faithful. We're to be faithful. He is holy. We're to be holy. He loves the Father. We're to love the Father. He walked in total obedience to God. And we're to walk in total obedience to God. That's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's walking or waiting diligently, waiting properly dressed. Number two, wait properly disengaged. We're not to make provision for the flesh. It says here, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The word provision means forethought or planning. The idea is we are to avoid any and all attempts by the mind to allow for the fulfilling of the fleshly lusts. We're guilty of assuming that sin begins with the devil. He thinks it up and he tempts us with it. However, we do not 
have to fall into temptation. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common unto man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be uh, tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear, to bear it. We will sin, but we don't have to. We'll be tempted, but we don't have to yield. Romans 6.13, Neither yield you... Uh, you, your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God for those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Wait properly and disengage. Disengage from the world. I wonder, are we doing our secular and spiritual duty this afternoon? Or has the Spirit of God placed maybe his finger on some area that needs some immediate attention? If so, I recommend bringing that need to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven.